you know, the trouble with traditional self-custody is it's complex, it's clumsy, and also you're remote from trading locations. You have to go rummaging through your desk drawer to try and find your hardware wallet when you want to trade. With Uphold Vault, you have all of the security of a self-custody wallet, but when you want to trade, the trading venue is literally one click away. Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. There's an interesting tension in crypto. On one hand, you have usability, and on the other, self-sovereignty. If you've ever heard the phrase, not your keys, not your crypto, you know what I'm talking about. Bitcoin was created, at least in part, in response to the 2008 banking crisis, and the idea that humanity could save ourselves from the next big financial crash by taking more direct and individual control of our financial activities. But fast forward 15 years, and it's still really hard for the average person to operate a crypto wallet. Few people I know would dare to put their entire net worth into a system where loss of a 12-word phrase could spell financial ruin. So what's the solution? Well, my next guest is Simon McLaughlin. He's CEO of Uphold, one of the world's largest crypto exchanges. Founded in 2015, they've been through multiple market cycles. And recently, they've been rolling out some exciting new features going right at this tension. They've just launched something called Vault, which is a self-custody wallet that tries to give you both control of your keys and an easy-to-use experience for customers. Simon and I get to discuss Uphold's experience during the 2017-2018 bull and bear markets and how that compares to the current period. We also talk about what makes Uphold unique from their rigorous token listing process to their unique trading infrastructure and their recent partnership with Ripple. And of course, because this is public key, we also talk about Simon's view of the regulatory landscape across the US, Europe, and the United Kingdom. Last thing before the episode, if you're interested in self-custody, the crypto regulatory landscape, and other blockchain-related topics, then you definitely must attend the Chainalysis Links conference. It's coming back to New York City on April 9th and 10th, 2024. We've got a terrific lineup of speakers, and right now, you can get a holiday discount on your ticket before prices go up in the new year. As always, you can find the link to register in the show notes. Today, I'm joined by Simon McLaughlin, who is Chief Executive Officer at Uphold. Simon, welcome to the show. Ian, thank you very much for, for having us. Super excited to, to learn more about Uphold's business today, but I'm, I'm actually curious to start with your personal background. You've been with the firm for a long time, and prior to that, from what I can gather from LinkedIn, spent a long time in the, the world of private equity and investments. Where did you first encounter cryptocurrency, and what led you to, to make the leap from TradFi into the exciting world of crypto? Well, I traveled around a lot. I lived in the US for a while. I traveled and lived occasionally in Latin America. And that gave me a, a real sense for how difficult it is to move money cross-border. Um, you know, not only is it expensive and slow, but it's error-prone. So when I was living in New York, I, I lived on Union Square, and there's a bookshop there called Barnes & Noble. And I do remember the moment in 2017 when I picked up a book on a Saturday afternoon about Bitcoin. And it was just this notion that anybody with a mobile phone and, in, and an internet connection could move value all around the world without any intermediary that just completely captured my imagination. And I just very deliberately decided that I wanted to go and work in that industry. And so wrote on spec to a whole bunch of firms, one of them being Uphold. Amazing. And what year did you find that book in Union Square? That was in, let me get it right, it must have been early 2017. And I joined Uphold in late 
2017. But interestingly, you know, I worked for 20 years in traditional finance and I never really came across crypto or digital assets. I think people in the industry tend to forget how little at that point the message has had permeated the mainstream. So I, I didn't come across it through my work in, you know, the institutional investment space. It's interesting. I think a lot of people's exposure to crypto was if you were trying to do certain forms of online commerce, right? Obviously, if you were maybe into into some of the more illicit trade, that was probably where you would have encountered it, or if you were just aware of kind of darknet markets and, and things like that in prior years. But 2017 was really where there was a huge boom. We had seen the launch of Ethereum a little prior. There were ICOs happening kind of left and right by 2017. Take us back to that point in time for Uphold. What was the firm like when you joined? What was the focus? What were you working on? I've loved Uphold from the moment I joined it. It's got a fantastic and unique engineering architecture and trading architecture, which makes it really special. When I joined in 2017, I think we were at 47 employees. Today, we're at around around about 400. You know, and it's gone from you know a tiny business into into quite a significant business. Um, and I remember when I joined, what I couldn't get used to because you know most businesses distribute regionally or nationally or internationally but of course crypto is inherently global and so I remember joining in sort of September October time in 2017 and then we went into that enormous bull market and it was just extraordinary you know to see the growth in user numbers I think we we had a 230 percent increase in monthly transacting customers between September and December 2017. And in 2021, it was even more spectacular. We went from, in September 2020, we had monthly volumes of 140 million to May 21, so six months later, just over six months, $2.5 billion a month. And, you know, for any business to scale that quickly is extraordinarily difficult. You have to scale customer service, you have to scale compliance and control frameworks, you know, which often involve a lot of manual processes. So I, I do remember being simultaneously exhilarated by the potential of being involved in a business that was truly global in distribution, but also, you know, very aware of the challenges in terms of having to scale a business very, very quickly in, in response to very unpredictable demand patterns as well. Yes, I mean, it's it's amazing how much that is consistent with my experience joining Chainalysis. I, I recall coming on board and in the first few days, I was reviewing kind of information about where our customers were around the world and how they were using our technology. And I was blown away at, at the global distribution, you know, customers in places as far, far out as Mongolia, where I can say, safely say I've never had the opportunity to work with, with anyone in that country prior to joining Chainalysis. It's such a unique property of cryptocurrency, right? Unlike most technologies, Technology that tends to kind of originate, you know, California, Silicon Valley, and then migrate eastward around the world. Crypto doesn't have that attribute at all. It doesn't, no. It has sort of violent and unpredictable patterns. When I first joined Uphold, I think our second largest customer base was in Venezuela. And it was basically a classic example of people in a country with an unstable fiat currency looking for the safe harbor of digital assets. And, and that was a huge business. And we, we've still got a significant following in in Latin America for that reason. You know, today, uh, I gather the, the company is operating in 184 countries and you support over 200 different currencies between the, the kind of crypto and fiat sides of the business. Like the complexity of that just must be absolutely massive. Yeah, I mean, the, the trading stack is complex. Um, we support 280 assets altogether. 
largely digital assets, coins, tokens. Um, we also do precious metals. Um, we also do uh, carbon credits. But the, I mean, the majority of our business obviously is in digital assets and tokens. And we've, we've kind of, on the route, most people know it's because of our retail app. We've kind of made a, a name for ourselves because we, we support important new tokens early. Um, we source liquidity from 30 underlying venues, including some decentralized exchanges, which is where some uh, significant new tokens appear first. So we've been the C5 venue over the past few, over, over the past, I don't know, 12 months, which has really been you know, the place you've gone to discover things like Casper, XDX, uh, sorry, XDC, um, uh, Hedera, Hashgraph. There's a bunch of stuff that we were we were first to cover. Talk about how you approach that a little bit, because I, I get the sense reviewing your public website, there's a huge emphasis on trust and security. We're going to talk about some of your innovations, I think, on the security side here in a little bit. I see many exchanges take a very conservative approach to listing new tokens. So being first to market as a differentiator must present some challenges. How, how do you think about overcoming those and, and being first, but also being safe? Yeah, well, I think it's a question for us of being safe. And it's lovely if you can be first too. <laughs> so, I mean, it's fascinating in the sense that there are now tens of thousands of projects being built on blockchains. And you want to give people the opportunity of accessing all of that innovation at the same time as protecting them from scams and frauds. We're not in the business of picking the winners or the losers. We're not an investment advisor. But when we look to launch a new token, there's a very formal process that we, we take the, the project through. So we have a listing committee. Every token has to go through it. It consists of infosec, compliance, fraud, legal. And we reject around 70% of tokens that are brought to the, to the table. We make sure there's a real community behind uh, each project. We make sure the code is open source and auditable by a reputable third party. We conduct searches on the founders. We look at token economics to make sure that the team isn't holding a disproportionate amount of the token. We don't support tokens with privacy features. We obviously make look at the, the marketing language that the project is using. If they're suggesting that you know the price is going to go up, you know, or if it goes into the realms of being a security, we reject it. So we do really a, a, a vast amount of work before we bring uh, a token onto the platform and. The vast, vast majority are rejected because we really don't want to expose, you know, retail customers, especially to the risk of detriment and sifting the wheat from chaff in this space. It is, it's difficult. You know, people have to educate themselves above all before they invest. It, it is obviously a high risk space. Yeah, high risk, high return. But I, I love the approach. I, I'm curious, you, you mentioned earlier that one of the things that was attractive about Uphold at the outset was the sophistication of the trading platform and infrastructure that you built. And I notice it kind of gets encapsulated in this marketing phrase, anything to anything trading experience. Share what you can about, like, what does that trading infrastructure actually look like? And maybe how does it differ from, you know, the, the average exchange out there? Uh, what, what's really making Uphold unique? Sure. So if you look, first of all, at the interface level, on Uphold, you can go from, in one move, physical gold into Bitcoin, or you can go from Hedera Hashgraph into Casper in, in one trade. You don't have to sell the token, buy fiat, sell fiat, buy a different token. 
If you go onto a lot of other platforms, you still have to you know, do a trade in several legs, which is expensive and clumsy. So at an interface level, you can go from any supported asset into any other supported asset in one move. Um, and that's because people are trading on our ledger. So behind the scenes, we're structured a little bit like a prime broker. We have our own inventory. That inventory is operated within risk bands, so we don't go more than 2,000 long or 2,000 short on any particular asset. Long or short based on our you know, liabilities to customers. As soon as we do, in either direction, we go out to market and we, we rebalance our inventory. And this, the thing that makes Uphold really special is we're connected to 30 underlying venues, including centralized exchanges, decentralized exchanges, OTC brokers. And we have a, a pricing engine that's listening to all of the pricing and all of the quantities in real time on all of those venues. And that system is actually pretty sophisticated. It's, we, we rely on physical servers co-located next to our trading partners. We have servers in Japan, Singapore, Europe, uh, US, uh, on a co-located basis. The, the trading la- language is C++ and Go. We don't operate in the cloud. This is physical servers, so you've got ultra-low latency. And in plain English, what all that means is we're able to continually poll the market for the best pricing. And for retail, that means you, know, you, you can rely on competitive pricing compared with comparable platforms. And for our institutional business, very deep liquidity because you've got access to the whole market and we can help you move large quantities in or out with minimal price impact. So it's a very powerful model because you know you haven't got one order book, you've effectively got 30 order books and you're continually listening to them all and identifying the, you know, the best way to do a trade. And unlike a lot of uh, similar trading venues, we don't just do USD pairs, we do USD, GBP pairs, Euro pairs, ETH pairs, BTC pairs. So there are literally hundreds of paths to doing a transaction. And that basically helps us obtain optimal execution for clients. And it makes the, you know, the infrastructure very adaptable to to different user groups. So Simon, you know, that liquidity that you're talking about, I would imagine that was a big draw for the recent partnership announcement with Ripple. Talk a little bit about what you're working on with them. Sure. Uh, Well, it's a very exciting deal for us. Ripple have a service called Ripple Payments, which allows multinational companies to move money cross-border in a very seamless and quick way. It's largely to do with treasury movements from one subsidiary to another. Um, So, you know, you could have a very large company moving funds from the US to Europe or, you know, Asia to the UK. And the way they do it is they allow the company to basically, they'll open an account with Uphold, the account will be pre-funded with XRP up to a certain dollar amount required for the transaction. And then our job is to convert the crypto into fiat and handle bank payouts. We're one of several liquidity providers to the service. Um, the corridors we're operating in are UK, US, Europe. And you know we're very excited about it because it's a service that's up and running with a, with a large installed user base. And Ripple are already moving hundreds of millions of dollars a year through the service. So for us, it's you know a very high value use of our infrastructure. Um, and by infrastructure, I basically mean the trading architecture I spoke about before, which allows you to move large quantities without moving the price of an asset. Um, the licensing that we've got, we have, I think it's 51 licenses now on three continents. 
and also all of the compliance and fraud framework that you need to move crypto into fiat and vice versa. That's a highly regulated activity uh, and you need specific licenses for us. It's a part of the business I'm most excited about because if you really believe in blockchain technology, that's a true example of it being used to cut out middlemen inefficiencies and you know serve a useful purpose. It's got nothing to do with speculation. It's got everything to do with performing financial transactions more efficiently. And a big part of Uphold's story now is we're positioning ourselves as a piece of infrastructure that such projects can plug into. For example, there are thousands of super interesting projects being built on blockchains now. We're integrated into 26 blockchains. Earlier this year, we launched a service called Topper, and Topper allows a user to, with their debit or credit card, buy crypto on the spot on the website of one of these projects and move fiat into crypto to participate in the project. So it's a non-custodial solution. Again, it's really facilitating payments into decentralized projects. And uh, it's a very scalable business. You know, you're fundamentally acting as a bridge, a regulated bridge between fiat and crypto. That's the kind of thing that gets us really excited because it's recurrent payment flows, it's utility use case of crypto. And, you know, it's got nothing to do with people just gambling on crypto. As you think about your business into the future, what's the relative split between kind of this B2B infrastructure that you just described versus the maybe more well-known today uh, retail trading venue? Yeah, I mean, my goal is to get the company to a point where by the end of 2026, the majority of our revenues come from B2B payments. Now, that depends on a lot of things. It depends on clear regs crystallizing in, in, in many parts of the world. It depends on a certain rate of enterprise adoption of the technology. But I'm really, really encouraged over the last eight months. Now that we're getting clearer regs in many parts of the world, we are seeing companies adopting the technology to do really interesting, useful things. Over the past few months, we've, we've even been approached by a number of quite large banks. And the banks are basically saying, look, now we can see the regs are coming. Okay, they may not be here today, but we can see they're coming. We want to be able to distribute digital assets to our customers. We don't need your wallet, but we don't want to have to build everything you've got. We don't want to have to go and get 51 licenses. We don't want to have to build all of that trading architecture. So we would love to plug your infrastructure into our wallet on a white label service. That's a part of the business, again, we're super interested in because you're plugging into very large installed user bases. You're not connecting with, you know, startups and inheriting execution risk. So that's, uh, you know, a very encouraging sign for us. That outlook is kind of amazing coming off the year that we had in 2022, where it felt like the entire industry was kind of on the brink of collapse. To yeah. know that banks are now coming back to the table and actually exploring your know, projects with the level of sophistication you just described. I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, they're seeing a resilience in the industry after these brush fires where a lot of weaker players get taken out and the players that have robust control infrastructure, you know, and proper proper control frameworks. I think the firms that are left standing are, you know, the kind of firms that banks want to work with. I mean, like a lot of crypto firms, one of the challenges over the past year has been maintaining banking relationships in the wake of FTX. You know, we're really, really proud that we, we managed to retain our banking partnerships in the United States, Europe, and the UK, and added new banking partnerships, I might add. 
at a time when there wasn't a very high degree of appetite among many banks to support crypto firms. And the reason we were able to retain them was, you know, fundamentally, you as a crypto firm have to sell your own compliance function and control framework to the bank's compliance department. And the banks will only work with firms who represent a low risk to them, which means you've got really solid anti-money laundering controls, fraud controls, infosec controls. I mean, these are very complex businesses. And, you know, you have to get your partners comfortable that you don't represent an unacceptable level of risk. You know, given the markets you're operating in, even just the three you mentioned, US, UK, Europe, it strikes me that the regulatory and kind of policy view towards crypto is pretty radically different across those three markets, right? I mean, I as an American, I would say we're kind of mired in gridlock and, and uncertainty here in the US at the moment. Europe seems to be leading the way with, at least from my view, is a is a pretty compelling and reasonable framework under, under Mika. And the UK is somewhere in the middle where it's seem like they're being very restrictive on actually licensing exchanges. I think you're uniquely one of the few that actually has an FCA license. Yeah. But now publicly, they've sort of said they're hoping to attract more legitimate crypto businesses into the market. So maybe that's opening up a little bit. What's your perspective? I think the MICA regime across Europe is the most progressive and far reaching. Dubai is doing some really interesting things. The UK is, it's really promising, actually. They, they've they're taking crypto really seriously. And you know the government has a high appetite for attracting the industry and providing a home to the industry. And a lot of big crypto firms have moved to the UK because the UK is providing clear rules of the road. At a government level, the appetite is high because they can see the technology is not going away. I think there's a little bit of a lag. The FCA is still, I think it's still making up its mind basically. And it's got extremely high standards for crypto firms. The, the process they put us through is something like I've never experienced before. And I have to say it was brilliantly run by the FCA, incredibly demanding. And we were very delighted to, to, to get the license because they really, they really made every large firm that applied for that license work for it. But I think at a government level, there's an appetite to attract the industry here. Where we're based, we're just off Carnaby Street on Oxford Circus. And around, within a stone's throw, there's a whole bunch of big crypto firms, Genesis, uh, Copper, to name just a handful within a couple of hundred yards of us. So London is becoming a crypto-friendly destination and the, the, and the government's introduced some pretty helpful legislation and draft bills. The US, I think we're coming up for a regime change. I'm hopeful that there'll be clear rigs in the next two or three years. My belief, I mean, it's been good to see some of the SEC overreach be put in check by the courts over the past nine months. And I think what's particularly encouraging in the US is if you look at the draft bills that have been introduced, so the McHenry bill, the Loomis-Gilbrand bill, there's real detail in those bills that you know, has definitions that even MICA doesn't have in. So my own personal belief is the US is going to be late to the party, but they will come to the party and they'll probably end up coming with the best set of rules and the most detailed set of rules for all. But it's going to be two to three years of continuing to navigate you know, a degree of uncertainty. I enjoy the optimistic outlook on the, the situation in the UK and what you described with the FCA and the difficulty through the licensure and examination process, I think is what we actually want everywhere. Like you said, weeding out the firms that aren't taking the security and fraud seriously. I mean, those are the companies that we don't want to see continue. I'm interested to shift gears, though. You just had a huge announcement on the technology front, launching something called Vault. Talk to us about what Vault is and why you decided to build it. 
Basically, Vault makes self-custody easy and convenient for the average user. It's a multi-sig wallet where the user controls the majority of the keys. So the user has two keys, we Uphold have one key. If you put assets in your Uphold Vault, the assets are on chain, uh, they're in a location that's fully bankruptcy remote, and the wallet is resilient to key loss. So in other words, if you lose one of your private keys, you can put your remaining private key together with our private key to create a replacement key. And the last benefit is that, you know, the trouble with traditional self-custody is it's complex, it's clumsy, and also you're remote from trading locations. You have to go rummaging through your desk drawer to try and find your hardware wallet when you want to trade. With Uphold Vault, you have all of the security of a self-custody wallet, but when you want to trade, the trading venue is literally one click away. So you can move your funds back to Uphold, and this is an automated process. So one of your keys is put together with our one key, and the, the, the funds are automatically pulled back. We really think it's something special. It's incredibly easy to use. It's multi-chain, so we're starting with XRP. We'll add uh, Bitcoin in uh, Q1, followed by some of the more exotic network networks, actually, such as XDC and Casper in Q2. So you won't need multiple wallets for, for multiple chains, it covers multiple chains. And I think the thing I love about it the most is we chose native multi-sig technology that's embedded in the infrastructure of blockchains. And that technology sort of, on, in the case of Bitcoin, it's what, 10, 12 years old. Bitcoin network's never been hacked. That technology is battle-tested. It's protected tens of billions of dollars of assets. And we put a sort of a window onto it that makes it much easier to use. And if you lose one of your keys, we can help you create a replacement key. I, I know when I came to, to crypto for the first time, I, my impression was, wow, what a fantastic technology innovation. But the reality is for the average person holding digital assets natively is difficult. It's complex. It's impractical. And so, you know, I believe that Vault potentially solves one of the biggest problems in crypto, which is it makes it easy to hold digital assets on a self-custody basis. I would add an adjective to your description of, of self-custody, which is terrifying, right? This idea that you have <laughs> something of significant value that is backed by a string of letters and numbers. You know, you're never quite sure when you go to send something out of one of these wallets. <laughs> like, am I sending it to the right location or am I sending it to a, uh, a burn address where I'll never see it again? So I always sweat a little bit before I hit transfer. So I, I love you. this model. I, a couple kind of technical questions. The idea that it's one click to transfer from my wallet back into my account at Uphold. Is there a transaction fee associated with that? Or are you somehow covering the transaction fees? And I realize that may vary depending on the network that you're operating on. Yeah. So, I mean, we're starting off with XRP where the, the fees are tiny. But no, to your point, when you move funds between the vault and uh, Uphold, yeah, there is an on-chain transaction fee, which you, the user, pay, pay for. But, you know, in practical terms, on, on XRP, it's, it's, it's negligible. I think there's a minimum balance. I think initially you need 12 XRP to open a Vault account, but you know that, that's not a king's ransom. Why the decision to start with XRP versus any other currency out there? What, what led you to that path? Just the majority of our users hold XRP. As you know, we, we continued listing XRP for two years when most other exchanges delisted it, and we attracted a very large user base of XRP holders. So beginning of the year, we surveyed our customers and said, what, what do you most want to see on Uphold? And the resounding answer we got back was 
greater variety of custody options. So this year we've introduced UpHoddle, which is a, a true self-custody wallet. By true, I mean, you know, you, you just get one key. Vault is our assisted self-custody option where you get two keys, we keep one key. So, you know, to your point, it's sort of self-custody without the terror of, yeah. I've lost my key. But it's very much user-driven. And it, it, I mean, a lot of this was driven post-FTX. You know, people lost confidence in centralized exchanges given what went on at FTX, which, as you know, was nothing to do with the, the technology and everything to do with conventional fraud. But when we asked our customers, custody came up as the big issue. Having said that, you know, the traditional uphold app, the, the custodial model, every month for the last 18 months, with two months of exception, we, we've seen very strong positive inflows. We were definitely a net beneficiary from that crisis in the industry because uphold uniquely publishes its assets and liabilities every 30 seconds on a public website. And we've done that since 2014, every 30 seconds. And that means you know that your assets are here. You know they're available to withdraw. And we're audited by a firm called RSM Robson Rhodes, which is a big audit firm with an international reputation. And also we've done, we've done stuff like take governance really seriously. Our chairman in, of Uphold Europe is a guy called Kevin Lutwick, who's a former FCA seven-year regulator in the U.S., our, you know, the chairman of Uphold Limited is a guy called Jim Hilton, who's the former head of Promontory Financial Group, the big, the big compliance advisory firm. So we've got governance built into our, you know, into our DNA. You know, so at Uphold, you know, we never loan out customer money. We never rehypothecate customer money. And you can go to our transparency page in it at any time and you can see that your assets are there 100% plus reserved. So that's really... I was on that page on the website earlier today, actually. I saw the page and I actually sat there long enough to see it refresh. So we'll link to it, the show notes. Everybody else can go watch the uh, the numbers move around. Uh, I think the big deal, though, is the point you made about having a, an actual auditor uh, verifying those sums, right? I, you know, you follow the FTX debacle and they, they had some of those numbers on their website too, but they were yeah. just random number generated numbers. They weren't actually, yeah. they weren't tied to anything that mattered. And so having that, that seal of approval from an auditor on the process behind it, I think is really powerful. Last question for you. What's on the horizon beyond Vault for the business? New markets, new technology, new tokens. Where, where do we see things going over the next year? I don't know the future, right? But it feels pretty promising at the moment. You've got sort of, we're coming up to the Bitcoin halving. There's greater regulatory clarity emerging. Companies and you know some banks are adopting the technology in a way that we didn't we didn't really foresee certainly 12 months ago. So it does feel as though the industry is in a much better place than it was a year ago. In terms of where Uphold's going geographically, we're going to Canada, Brazil, Australia, and we're also looking at countries like Turkey and uh, Vietnam which have strong crypto communities. To my earlier point, we already have a comprehensive set of APIs, but we're doing a lot of work on building out our API set so that a third-party firm that has its own wallet can plug in and access some of our core services without having to take the Uphold wallet. So we can, you know, again, act as a piece of white-label infrastructure for for retail aggregation platforms and regulated financial institutions. That's very exciting for us. And we're obviously busy scaling products like Topper, which is the Fiat to Crypto on-ramp. That's extraordinarily in a really difficult market that's been doubling its revenues every month since launch. So 
Yeah, we feel it's a, a pretty interesting time to build the B2B part of our business is where our principal focus is, focus is at the moment. Exciting time, Simon. Thanks so much for the conversation today and best of luck with all that you've got ahead of you. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on, Ian. Absolutely. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team has been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So do me a favor. Right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on X or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Last week, the industry was in a panic as a software supply chain attack targeting Ledger Connect software compromised many popular decentralized apps and unfortunately resulted in hundreds of thousands of dollars being drained from victim wallets. As the attack was unfolding, I happened to be interviewing Roz Niv, who's co-founder and CTO at Blockade for a future episode of Public Key. Blockade is amazingly a Web3 security startup that specializes in securing crypto wallets. The timing couldn't have been better. We were lucky enough to get Roz's hot take on the situation. He first cautioned users that the attackers injected a wallet draining code into popular dApps and urge people not to connect to any dApps until the all clear had been sounded. Then he explained how thanks to tools like Blockade and other technology, and of course humans, the losses from this attack were minimized. Don't forget to subscribe to Public Key to make sure you get the full podcast as soon as we release it.